My name is Andrew Perlot. Welcome to The Turning Wheel, a podcast about the pivot points of human history and the fascinating questions that underlie our civilization. This episode wraps up my series on the twilight years of the Pax Romana and the reign of Marcus Aurelius, Kingdom of Iron and Rust. I hope you've enjoyed the series. A number of you have reached out to me with questions, and I'll be answering four of them today. So without further ado, let's get into it. Reader Melissa S. writes, I'm really curious about the book that Marcus wrote, Meditations, which you called his journal or notebook. You said he wrote it while fighting against the Germans, and you quoted from it to display his likely mindset or intentions at various points. I found all that really interesting, but I flipped through it at the library, and it all seems extremely opaque. Many of the ideas are inspiring, but Marcus rarely makes concrete references to anything. It's not like any journal or a modern person would write. What do we actually know about it? How did it even survive from antiquity? Did he write other notebooks? So... I agree with you that the book is often opaque and kind of enigmatic. I read it for the first time when I was around 16 or 17, and I've come back to it multiple times over the years, but each time I'm left with questions. And you're right, it's not like it's a journal or a chronicle of what Marcus's life was like. Historians don't know a ton about the book because Marcus didn't make any obvious attempt to target it toward anyone but himself or explain what he was trying to do with it or to ensure that it would even survive him. Even the title, Meditations, is a modern attempt to classify a group of Marcus's writings, not something Marcus called those writings. Earlier versions of the text were called Treaties to Himself, but that was also kind of a a made-up title. Most historians think Marcus wasn't trying to write a book to instruct others, but just to deal with the pressure of being an emperor in very hard times by kind of ordering his thoughts through writing at the end or beginning of each day. He makes multiple references to conversations, events, and people that even a contemporary of his who was well-educated would have no way of identifying, so it's unlikely that he intended it for wider circulation. If anything, Marcus might be embarrassed to know others were reading it, but it's actually gone on to inspire generations of people with its wisdom, if you will. As to whether or not there were ever other notebooks, we don't know, but several historians think different parts of meditations were lost over time, and what we have is an incomplete manuscript. It's entirely possible that this is the only notebook of this type Marcus wrote because we, he may have had to create it in response to the loss of a really beloved teacher, confidant, and advisor. One of Marcus's closest friends and tutors was a senator named Quintus Junius Rusticus. Rusticus was a practicing Stoic philosopher, and prior emperors had put him to work defending the empire as a general. He and another Stoic general, Arian, who I mentioned earlier in this series, developed effective battlefield tactics they used to defeat the Alans, a horse-based warrior tribe of the steppe who invaded Asia Minor. Those same tactics were later used during Marcus's war against the Parthians. In Meditations, Marcus writes... From Rusticus I learned to become aware of the fact that my character needed improvement and training, and not to be led aside into an argumentative 
sophistry, nor compose treaties on speculative subjects, or deliver pretentious sermons, or show off with ostentatious displays of self-discipline or generosity, and to eschew rhetoric, poetry, and refined language, and not to lounge about the house in my toga, or to let myself go in this sort of way, and to write letters simply, like his own letter written to my mother from Sinuessa, I'm mispronouncing that, to show oneself ready to be reconciled to those who have lost their temper and trespassed against one, and ready to meet them halfway as soon as ever they seem to be willing to retrace their steps, to read with minute care, and not to be content with a superficial bird's-eye view, nor to be too quick to go along with smooth talkers, and to make the acquaintance of the memoirs of Epictetus, which he supplied me without from his own library." There are other references to Marcus being grateful that he didn't explode in frustration at Rusticus or do something rash, because he was apparently pretty harsh on his pupil. As Marcus matured and took power, the tutor-student relationship probably matured into a more general friendship. Rusticus lived through the early part of Marcus's reign, but died probably of the Antonine Plague around the time of the First Marcomannic War, right when Marcus began writing his meditations. Ancient Stoics wrote that as practitioners became more adept at their philosophy, they should be able to rely more and more on their own internal reflection and fortitude for guidance, and less on outside guidance. With the death of Rusticus and Marcus's separation from other prominent Stoic teachers living in Rome due to the conflict on the German frontier, the emperor may have begun meditation as a way of essentially becoming his own teacher and guide. Many of the passages seem to involve a back-and-forth communication, even though Marcus is the only one writing. Perhaps he's imagining responses from Rusticus or Epictetus or some other mental image he has of a wise person. No one knows what happened to meditations after Marcus's death. Perhaps it passed to Commodus or another member of Marcus's inner circle like his son-in-law, Tiberius Claudius Pompeianus. There's limited references to the work through antiquity until the Byzantine era, when a Christian bishop named Arethus sent a copy to a fellow churchman in 907 AD. In his letter, which survives, he writes, quote, I have had for some time an old copy of the Emperor Marx's most profitable book, so old indeed that it is altogether falling to pieces. This I have had copied and am able to hand down to posterity in its new dress, unquote. From there, the book was recopied multiple times, mostly by monks, before it was eventually printed for mass distribution in 1558. It's possible that we'll find more historic Roman writing carbonized at Heraclium or Pompeii that will shed more light on the story, but I have a feeling that it will always remain a pretty opaque document, one that people can find inspiration in, but uh, one that's vague enough that you can kind of apply it to almost anything. Reader Kevin M. writes, I thought you did a good job on this series, but it seems like you really bent over backwards in an attempt to justify Marcus knowingly deciding to let Commodus become emperor. 
Commodus killed thousands of people and ruled so poorly it's ridiculous. I do think Marcus made a huge mistake in breaking with the adoption precedent of the five good emperors. It undid many of his accomplishments and blackened his reputation. So this isn't really a question so much as a statement, but I thought it was worth a response. So I'd like you to do a little thought experiment with me. Imagine with me for a moment that the history books contain not a word about the reign of the psychopathic emperor Mark of Commodus. There's nothing about his murders, debaucheries, and grand spectacles. Nothing about how he completely abandoned running the empire so he could concentrate on his pleasures. There's not a word on the fleecing of his subjects by his corrupt chamberlains. No one thinks he was a stain on the reputation of his father since he never lived to take the throne. No, the only thing we know about Commodus is that he was the sole surviving male heir of Marcus Aurelius and that Marcus had him killed when he was around 16 because he was not living up to the emperor's high standards and didn't think he should take the throne. There's a few lines in Cassius Dio in the Augustan history about how Commodus liked to party, wasn't into studying philosophy, and wasn't really a very nice person. How do you imagine we'd react to this situation? Do you think modern people would excuse Marcus for murdering his teenage son because he wasn't a chip off the old block? After all, Marcus was famously austere and devoted to duty. Might we not expect a teenager raised under those circumstances to be a bit rebellious, a bit different than his father? And even if he wasn't great at 16, who is? Do you know many 16-year-olds who have a fully formed character that doesn't grow and changes the age? I'd hate for anyone to judge adult Andrew by my personality at 16. No. Had Marcus killed Commodus to appoint another heir and avoid a civil war, people would have called him a heartless tyrant who stepped away from his stoic values. I honestly don't believe that his reputation would be any better. If anything, it would be worse. Philicide tends to not go over very well. Okay. Listener Jake D. writes... Great series. I found the last episode about climate change and soil loss really interesting. I read one biography of Marcus that suggested that he was a great guy, but too trusting and lenient towards those who were not as upstanding as him, and not that caused many of his troubles. Specifically, they mentioned him not straightening out Commodus before it was too late, his wife's possible infidelity, and scheming causing the civil war. Several Roman historians suggest that Commodus was not even Marcus's son, but the result of an affair between his wife and a gladiator. What do you think of this? Listening to those quotes you read during the podcast, it seems like he was quick to forgive anyone for anything. Was he taken advantage of? I think this is a great question. And I also think it's really hard to know the answer. Um, but it would probably be a mistake to assume Marcus was being fooled about the character of those in his life. In fact, book two of the meditations opens with, quote, when you wake up in the morning, tell yourself the people I deal with today will be meddling, ungrateful, arrogant, dishonest, jealous, and surly, unquote. 
But how did he deal with those miserable people? He later writes that you should expect people to pull dirty tricks on you from time to time. He writes, quote, when your sparring partner scratches or headbutts you, you don't then make a show of it or protest or view him with suspicion or as plotting against you. And yet you keep an eye on him, not as an enemy or with suspicion, but with a healthy avoidance. You should act this way with all things in life. You should give a pass to many things which with our fellow trainees. For, as I've said, it's possible to avoid without suspicion or hate, unquote. So while Marcus may not have made a show of telling people off, he did keep an eye on them and act accordingly. I feel like I've talked about Commodus' situation at length, but I agree, it does seem strange that Marcus wasn't more heavily involved in raising his son, but we have to remember that Commodus was just a child when the Marcomannic Wars broke out. Marcus would spend more than a decade in Germania on a militarized border, which wasn't an appropriate place for a six-year-old. Commodus was given over to tutors who were probably the best available, but several historians say that he was also coddled by his extended family, and the results were not good, obviously. Actually, most of the Roman emperors who were told at a young age that they would one day rule turned out poorly. I find it highly unlikely that Commodus was the result of an affair between Faustina and a gladiator for the simple fact that we have multiple statues of Marcus and Commodus through different phases of their life. A Google image search will turn up many of them if you're curious. They looked incredibly alike when they were children, and they looked alike through middle age when Commodus was killed. If you took a Marcus statue and added on that ridiculous Hercules lion skin and club motif that you see Commodus using, no one would suspect that it was a Commodus statue, or that it was a Marcus statue. It just looks like Commodus. Marcus and them have a, a remarkable resemblance. I'll talk more about Faustina in the next question, but to sum up, I'll note that all the evidence we have is that people viewed Marcus as too disciplined and stern, not as overly soft on people who needed to be put in their place. The Augustan history says, quote, but because Marcus, as a result of his system of philosophy, seemed harsh in his military discipline and indeed in his life in general, he was bitterly assailed. To all those who spoke ill of him, however, he made reply either in speeches or in pamphlets, unquote. So could Marcus have been both really stern and really easy on people taking advantage of him? Was he just being duped? It just seems like a weird combination to me, like two things that are unlikely to go together. But I don't know that we're ever going to really know the answer to that question. Just doesn't seem particularly likely to me. Listener Melissa K. writes, I'd love to know more about Marcus's wife, but you barely mentioned her. What was she doing during Marcus's reign? So I made a conscious decision to not get into too much detail about Marcus's wife, Faustina the Younger, in my podcast, partially because of the scant evidence we have about her and partially because of the binary way that Romans portrayed almost all powerful women. If you read through ancient Roman historical works, you see a pattern. When women are mentioned at all, and they often are not, they fall into one of two camps. They are either long-suffering saints with only the good of Rome and their children in their hearts, or they are heartless, sex-crazed, adulterous matriarchs who manipulate their husband and husbands and poison anyone who gets in the way of their son's rise to power. 
there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of middle ground. Um, and so you get these caricature women. The caricatures may have been a stereotype Romans actually believed in. Cato the Elder banned upper-class boys from attending senatorial meetings in fear that they would relay the news of the, to their inquisitive mothers, and thus giving away state secrets and causing gossip and intrigue. Faustina the Younger was clearly placed in the later camp by ancient historians, the sex-crazed maniac matriarchs. Um, and we don't know how much truth there were in these assertions. She was by birth Marcus's maternal cousin. She was also his sister by adoption after the emperor Antoninus Pius adopted Marcus as his heir. A marriage to your sister is technically illegal in ancient Rome, but uh, when your prospective father-in-law is the emperor and also your own father, apparently, you know, these rules can kind of be bent. So uh, what did Faustina do during Marcus's reign? We don't really have a ton of details. In several of Marcus's surviving letters to friends, he makes references to how happy his family life makes him, and he dwells in particular on his children, but his wife is not mentioned in a ton of detail. But she gave birth 13 times, so apparently there were, they were not totally estranged. The Augustan history mentions her having sexual affairs with sailors, gladiators, and commoners. In particular, it suggests that Commodus was the result of one such affair, but as I mentioned in the last question, I find that a bit hard to believe. Cassius Dio writes that her letter to Avidius Cassius, which I covered in episode 7, may have instigated a civil war. We know that she spent at least some of the years during which Marcus campaigned in Germania with him in various military camps and fortresses on the border, uh, which were probably not very glamorous or comfortable. Apparently, she was liked by the soldiers, and Marcus gave her the title Mother of the Camp. She died not long after the rebellion of Avidius Cassius, and there were rumors of Marcus putting her to death because you know she had just transgressed too far with, with that letter. Uh, but these sort of rumors accompany tons of upper-class Roman deaths when people didn't die of something obvious like a sword. It was just kind of assumed like, ah, poisoned by a jealous person or, uh, you know, a vengeful person. In Meditations, Marcus gives thanks that, quote, my wife is such as she is, so obedient, so affectionate, so straightforward, unquote. So perhaps Marcus was completely duped by his wife or lying to himself in his journal, but it seems fairly unlikely to me. But as I said in my opening, we don't know much about her, and the little we do know comes from questionable sources promoting the sex-crazed, power-hungry matriarch stereotype. So I don't personally consider that sort of evidence to be particularly uh, believable. All right, thanks for those questions. Hope you enjoyed this entire series. And uh, that pretty much wraps up everything. And uh, the series two will be coming down the pipeline. I will get back to you with details, uh, but new topic, and I think it's going to be pretty interesting. Uh, if you enjoy this series and you would like to support my work, help ensure that it keeps going, then uh, please consider becoming a supporter of the podcast financially. You can do that uh, by making a monthly donation of as little as a dollar a month to, Patre uh, to us on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash theturningwheel. And uh, you get all kinds of cool stuff, including the bonus episode from this series, which is already out. Uh, depending on um, how what your level of support is, there's also a, a book which I'm going to be working on based on this series, which people will get. 
and uh, other cool stuff too. So again, thanks for your listening and I'll see you later.